Former Maryland Congressman Mike Barnes speaks about the nation's perceptions of drunk driving when he was originally in Congress in the 1980s. You know, it was a joke, really. People would say, gee, uh, you know, last night I was so drunk, I, I forgot where I parked my car, and, you know, and I finally found it, and I'm so drunk I fell into the car and drove home, and people would laugh about that. People don't laugh about it anymore. Drunk driving's not a, not a joke. Following on the topic of drunk driving, Congressman Barnes offers a sobering picture of the U.S. Congress and its state of ethics today. I'm spending a lot of time dealing with uh, trying to help the institution which I revere, the United States Congress, and particularly the House of Representatives, uh, be as good as it can be, be a, such a, you know, a bastion of, of, uh, of strong ethics. Reflecting on the growing turmoil affecting U.S. politics today, Congressman Barnes offers his prescription for what needs to happen next from our elected officials. Leaders need to step up and find ways to come together and do things for the good of the country. And, and that's you need some, some politicians with courage, politicians who don't care whether they'll get reelected, but will do the right thing for the country. Occasionally we see that, but uh, it's all too rare. Stay tuned for the full episode with Congressman Barnes. Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. We're here today with Mike Barnes, former congressman from Maryland's 8th Congressional District, a Democrat who served between 1979 and 1987. Congressman Barnes is also a former president of the Brady Center to Prevent Gun Violence and is a former member of the Maryland Public Service Commission. Uh, Mike Barnes is an attorney and is the former chair of the Center for National Policy, as well as being a former Marine. Uh, Congressman Barnes, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you, Jordan. Happy to be right here with you. Thank you. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done throughout the course of your career to advance the public interest and why? Well, uh, it's an interesting time to ask me that question because I'm a member of the board of the Office of Congressional Ethics, uh, which is the organization, uh, the entity that investigates allegations of misconduct by members of Congress. And uh, there, there are eight members of the board, uh, four Republicans, four Democrats. Uh, we are um, almost all of us former members of Congress. Um, one, uh, there are a couple that are not. There's one who's a retired general and one who is a uh, retired head of the operations of the U.S. Congress. Um, but uh, we have a staff of a, a, a team of very talented young lawyers who, who work for us that do the actual investigations. They go out and interview all the witnesses and 
determine uh, the facts, and then they bring uh, all of that to the board, and the board then has to decide what action to take. And the action we, we can take if we believe there is substantial reason to believe that uh, something improper has taken place is we can refer it to the uh, House Ethics Committee, and they then can uh, decide what punishment, if any, is appropriate uh, for the member of Congress or the staffer who engaged in perhaps inappropriate activities. Uh, so that, as you can imagine, has been keeping me busy. Um, uh, unfortunately, we've had a lot of uh, allegations of misconduct by members of Congress in, uh, in recent times, and uh, uh, I'm spending a lot of time reading materials and uh, trying to determine what steps we ought to take. Now, on that topic, Mike, uh, there's been uh, recently, in, in 2017 and 18, uh, a sweeping uh, array of sexual harassment claims, and some individual members uh, have resigned from the U.S. Senate or the House in, uh, in order to avoid um, an ethics investigation. There's so much emphasis in the U.S. Constitution on due process. What are your thoughts about... Um, having individual members resign from Congress uh, in, in order to avoid uh, uh, an ethic, a congressional ethics panel inquiry. Do you think they should have remained in Congress to face the inquiry? Well, that's a that's a judgment they they have to make. Obviously, uh, they do end the they do end our jurisdiction uh, and the jurisdiction of the uh, office that that investigates uh, that issue. Uh, by resigning. When they leave Congress, uh, we no longer have, have any jurisdiction over them. The same is true with congressional staff. Uh, we have jurisdiction over them uh, until, until they leave. And once they leave, they're out of our jurisdiction. That doesn't mean they can't be prosecuted if they've committed a crime, and uh, sometimes, obviously, that happens. Uh, this entity was created uh, by uh, Nancy Pelosi when she became Speaker. You may recall that she and the Democrats that year ran on the theme that they were going to, if, if put in the majority, they were going to drain the swamp. <laughs> it was the, was the language they used. And part of her program to drain the swamp was the creation of the Office of Congressional Ethics, an outside entity that would be independent and not made up of current members of Congress that could do investigations. Um, our role is to try to help to improve the ethical environment in Congress. And I think, honestly, uh, OCE has, has done that in, in many respects by, by actually making sure that these cases do, do get attention and do get appropriately uh, addressed. Uh, previously, as you know, for decades, uh, the uh, ethics committees in both the Senate and the House were perceived to be places where allegations went to die. Uh, somebody would make an allegation of misconduct by a member of the House or the Senate, it would go to the ethics committee, and that would be the end of it. There'd be, you'd never hear about it again. Um, Nancy Pelosi, when she became Speaker, said, well, we're not going to have that continue in the House. She created this entity and I've been a member of it now for several years. Um, and uh, part, of, part of what happens with our, with our referrals to the Ethics Committee is they become public. Uh, so uh, 
Uh, it's more difficult for the ethics committee to just ignore it because our the facts that have been determined by uh, by OCE become become public, and if they are uh, substantial, uh, that makes it more difficult for the ethics committee to ignore it. One might think that there would be some sort of greater deterrence because of the public referrals that your committee can make to uh, the ethics committee. I think the there House. is. I, I, I think absolutely there is a deterrent factor. I think uh, I, I believe that the ethical environment on Capitol Hill is has been improved by this process. There's a long way to go. There are things that are legal uh, that are terrible. <laughs> Uh, I, I sometimes say that the problem with uh, the ethical situation in Washington, you know, is, is not people doing stuff that's illegal. It's people doing stuff that's legal. Uh, you know, for example, uh, almost all members of Congress now have what are so, so-called leadership PACs, these political action committees that they establish to raise funds. And almost all the funds come from special interests, from lobbyists and special interests. And, and they raise huge amounts of funds. Theoretically, to use to support other candidates running, you know, in, in elections, but these have become slush funds. It's legal, uh, but they can use them in ways that they couldn't use their own personal campaign funds. It's really a terrible scandal. Uh, it's rampant in Washington. Huge amounts of money moving from special interests to the elected officials. And the money being being used for you know fancy hotels and fancy dining and members living in a way that the, most of their constituents could never dream of, and and it's legal. It's awful. It's it's an awful system. That's just one example of of the problem that we have with our current um, campaign finance laws. Uh, personally, I, I think we ought to get rid of all special interest money in politics. Uh, we ought to we ought to ban it completely and uh, use public financing for for elections to eliminate this kind of it's really corrupt it's a corrupt process where the special interests fund the elections and fund these uh, basically personal slush fund packs uh, for members of the Senate and House. Those are strong sentiments. Banning all special interest money. Uh, to to uh, to solve a corrupt process, which is American democracy. Uh, clearly, uh, there there are many thoughts about how democracy uh, uh, is under siege, as you have um, democratically elected presidents in Turkey and Russia um, and, and other locations around the world seeming to move towards totalitarian regimes. Many individuals have, have also opined about um, the increasing uh, threats that even American democracy faces at home. Do you have any thoughts about where American democracy is going? Um, well, I am uh, concerned. I am concerned about it. I, I'm concerned about the money, which we were just discussing. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think special interest money affects virtually every issue that comes before the United States Congress. And I don't care whether it's domestic issues like, like health care uh, or the environment or, you know, those kinds of issues. But foreign policy, you know, our, our relationships with other nations are affected by special interest money. And, and it's tragic. But we also have uh, our basic democratic institutions under assault right now. Uh, the President of the United States uh, is uh, 
attacking on a, on a daily basis our, our judicial system, our, our investigative bodies in our, in our judicial process. He's attacking freedom of the press, saying that the press, an independent press, is the enemy of the American people. It's hard to believe that that is a quote from the president of the United States. You know, Thomas Jefferson <laughs> noted that he'd rather have a, a free press, you know, than any other element of, of, of a democratic society. This, this is, this is a, a very worrisome time for democracy in America, as, and of course, as you suggest, in many other countries. But we don't want to emulate uh, Russia or Turkey or North Korea or Venezuela or Cuba or any of these other uh, any of these other places around the world, but unfortunately, we have leadership in this country right now uh, that, in some ways, is doing precisely that. So, on the topic of foreign policy, uh, first of all, you you attended uh, graduate school abroad in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, while in the uh, House of Representatives, you were on a working group for Brazil, Canada, and Mexico. Um, and you have ha- uh, had a great interest uh, in, in Latin America. So um, my question is, uh, given the current administration's uh, antipathy towards free trade agreements such as NAFTA um, or the um, Pacific Trade Deal, uh, what thoughts do you have on, uh, I guess, the efficacy of free trade, uh, especially in the Americas, uh, and globalization since the current administration has been arguing uh, that we need to have more protectionist trade policies. Where do you think America should be going in terms of trade? Well, I'm one of those weird free trade Democrats. Uh, there aren't a lot of us. Uh, but I really believe that, that free trade in the long run is the best thing for the American people, certainly for consumers. Uh, and I think... Uh, that the that NAFTA has been a tremendous success. Uh, it's been good for Canada, Mexico, and the United States. It's created a huge number of jobs in all three countries. It's it's been a boon. Now, have there been losers? Absolutely. There are, there are industries that have been adversely affected in the United States, and the workers in those industries need to be helped. We need to help them find alternative work. We need to train them so they can do different jobs. There's no question that that some people. Have, have been adversely affected by, by NAFTA. But overall, it's been an enormous success. It's been just a boom. And when you talk about doing away with it, the people down in the southwestern part of the United States think you're crazy. Um, the same is true with respect to the TPP, the Trans- Trans-Pacific Partnership, which President Trump, I think, very sadly, uh, mistakenly, uh, has, has pulled us out of. This is, this is the best thing that's happened to China in Asia for us to pull back and allow and, and give that huge opening to China to be the dominant economic uh, player in, in that area where we were very competitive, but this is going to make us much, much, much less competitive. Uh, this was, this was a big mistake. Um, we ought to be looking for opening more markets, not closing them. Uh, and uh, I, I just think that the, the uh, Trump administration's, Approach to, to trade is, uh, is is very backward looking. We cannot, you know, isolate ourselves from the world. Globalization is a great thing for the United States because we have such enormously innovative companies. We have the best universities in the world. We have the, the, the highest trained workforce in the world. You know, we are we are 
beautifully primed to be, to be the winner in in uh, globalization and in international trade. So for us to to unilaterally pull pull back is uh, is beyond foolish. It's uh, it's a terrible mistake. Now, while you were in the House of Congress, you did work on human rights and democracy in Latin America. Has NAFTA or any other trade agreement that we've uh, had in the Americas had any impact on human rights and democracy? Has it given the United States more leverage in requesting human rights and democratic reforms in other Central American and South American countries? Well, that's an interesting question. Does the trade help uh, help uh, alleviate uh, human rights difficulties in, in, in other countries? I, th- I think it does. I think as you lift uh, living standards, um, people uh, uh, have more opportunities and, and can perhaps avoid some of the uh, human rights challenges. Uh, I also think that, uh, as you suggest in your question, uh, it gives us more influence. When we're, when we're actively trading with, with another country, it gives us more influence uh, in our relationship. With, with that country that goes beyond the economics, it gives us more opportunities to talk with them about about their their human rights environment and uh, to be uh, to be critical uh, when when appropriate as it as it often is tragically uh, in many of the countries of Latin America over the last uh, years of decades that I've been involved in policy there. I was chairman of the Western Hemisphere Subcommittee uh, when I was in Congress, and I've remained active and interested. In, and uh, issues related to the whole hemisphere ever since. Um, so I, I think you, I think you've got a, a good point with your question. Now, Mike, when you were on that subcommittee, you were very critical of the Ronald Reagan administration on Central American policy. I'd like to transition us to a political question: Was you were subsequently appointed by President Reagan to the Kissinger Commission on Central America? Can you explain how you went from being a Democratic member of Congress, being openly critical of the Reagan administration on Central American policy, to being a Reagan appointee on Reagan administration Central American policy? Well, I'll try to make this short, but it's an interesting story. Uh, Jack Kemp, uh, congressman from New York, uh, conservative Republican, was one of my best friends in in the House. Uh, Here I am. uh, uh, a liberal Democrat from Maryland, uh, but we became really very close friends, and and we dif- we disagreed about just about everything. But one night we were having dinner, um, and we were arguing about Central America. And the more we talked about it, the more we realized that we agreed about a lot of things with regard to Central America: the problems in El Salvador and Nicaragua and Guatemala and Honduras, and uh, and. Uh, and we came up with this idea. Why don't Why don't we get a bipartisan commission uh, to uh, to look at Central America and come up with some bipartisan recommendations of things that could be done U.S. policy to assist in Central America? So we decided. Well, let's we're two House members. Let's get two senators to join us in this idea. And we approached uh, Scoop Jackson, a Democrat, and Mac Mathias, my Maryland friend and colleague, Republican. And and the four of us sat down and agreed there ought to be such a commission, and the best way to do it would be to have the president appoint, it, appoint such a commission. So we went down to the White House, and we persuaded President Reagan to create the commission. 
he asked Henry Kissinger to chair it. He appointed the commission, and he asked the four of us to serve on it. That's that's the story of, of how I came to be on a Ronald Reagan commission. Uh, but it wasn't really a Ronald Reagan commission. It was a Jack Kemp, Mike Barnes commission. <laughs> so, so, the, so I guess the lesson for listeners is, if you want something badly enough, create it yourself and then pretend that somebody else gets to create it. <laughs> well, and, and, and make it bipartisan. You know, what we what Jack and I did would be almost unthinkable today in, in the Washington of 2018 for a Democrat and a Republican on very opposite ends of the political spectrum, uh, A, to be friends at all and be having dinner. That's almost unheard of now. And, and B, to be finding ways to work together to try to help the country. Um, that's just, it, it doesn't happen now. It's so sad. This is, this is right up there with uh, the, the influence of special interest money in our democracy as, as one of the things that makes me sad today when I look at what's happening in our country. Talk about um, how you and a Republican congressman from New York had so many differences, but you chose to focus on the single thing where you really very closely align. It seems like today um, many politicians may have, let's say, 90% in common, but they're only going to focus on the 10% where they differ. It seems like the focus in the 1980s was more on where you could find common ground, and the difference today sounds like everyone is focusing on how they can drive a wedge between themselves and anyone else who differs with them on anything. Can you explain how that shift of focus has occurred? I think a lot of it has to do with the media, the change in the media in America. We now have very partisan uh, media. It, it started mostly with talk radio. Um, it, it affected uh, the Republican Party intensely. Uh, the this right-wing talk radio would stir people up and um, force the political uh, leaders to to respond to a base that was that was you know pe- people got angry because talk radio would get them all worked up about some issue, and um, it's it's expanded beyond that. Uh, it's true in both parties. You've got bases that are uh, not willing to to think about you know what kind of compromise could be made to move the issue forward. Uh, they're thinking only about uh, beating the other guy. It's um, it's it's hard to see how we get out of it, out of this uh, syndrome that we're in, uh, because it's it's uh, it's so far-reaching now. The power of the left-wing and right-wing media and and the uh, uh, you know the intensity of the of the base in both parties, uh, but. Um, uh, I hope that leaders. I saw I saw in the paper this morning uh, that uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg gave a talk at a law school last night. She was she was not at the State of the Union address. She gave a talk and uh, and she she said leaders need to step up and find ways to come together and do things for the good of the country. And and that's you need some some politicians with courage, politicians who don't care whether they will get reelected but will do the right thing for the country occasionally we see that but uh it's all too rare on the topic of courage and for the good of the com- uh, country mike we are approaching 
the end of this podcast. And so I'd like to ask you to reflect on what you've done for the good of the country and what sort of political courage you have had within the context of your general motivations to be engaged in public service and what you might hope uh, has been uh, your legacy of your years in service, whether it is through preventing gun violence, working with public utilities in Maryland, or serving as a congressman uh, dealing with issues affecting Latin America. Mike, could you please speak to the people of Maryland who you, who you formerly represented about what you've done for the good of the country and why? Well, when I look back on my, uh, on my life and, and career in public service, I, there are a few things that, that I'm particularly uh, pleased to have been able to be involved in. One of them is right now. Uh, on the uh, board of the Office of Congressional Ethics, I'm spending a lot of time dealing with uh, trying to help the institution which I revere, the United States Congress, and particularly the House of Representatives, uh, be as good as it can be, be a, such a you know a bastion of of, uh, of strong ethics. Looking back, uh, I am proud of the, the work that I, I did in, in Latin America as chairman of the Western Hemisphere Subcommittee to promote democracy and human rights particularly in Central America, but also in places like, like Chile and Argentina and, and Haiti and Cuba. And, you know, I, I feel I, I made a, a little bit of a contribution in that area. One of the things I focused on a lot when I was in Congress was uh, highway safety and drunk driving. Uh, I'm very proud of the fact that uh, I was the, the leader to, to, to bring drunk driving to the fore as a as a national issue, uh, when, I, when I started talking about it in the 70s, people, you know, it was a joke, really. People would say, gee, uh, you know, last night I was so drunk, I, I forgot where I parked my car, and, you know, and I finally found it, and I'm so drunk I fell into the car and drove home, and people would laugh about that. People don't laugh about it anymore. Drunk driving is not a, not a joke. We helped to create Mothers Against Drunk Driving, and we raised the drinking age in America from 18 to 21, and we've saved well, tens, hundreds of thousands of, of, of lives since then as, as drunk driving deaths have, have gone way down in the country while miles driven have, uh, you know, quintupled. Uh, so I feel very good about that. Um, a lot of issues I worked on that I, that I continue to feel strongly about, protections for, for federal employees. We see the President of the United States calling to make it easier to fire people you don't like who work in the federal government. That's a terrible mistake. Um, and uh, I, I had the privilege of representing so many extraordinary uh, federal officials uh, that I learned the importance of, of uh, the protections for, for our government employees. Uh, just a, a lot of areas that I worked on that as I look back, I, I feel like I was able to make a little bit of a difference. And, um, and uh, you know, as I get, I get a lot older now, <laughs> Uh, it gives me some uh, some sense of uh, of pleasure that I was able to be involved in those issues. And that has been Mike Barnes, a former congressman from Maryland, uh, a former uh, member of the Public Service Commission, uh, president of the Brady Center to Prevent Gun Violence, and an attorney who speaks about what he has done for the good of the country, about uh, how he has created a legacy uh, of, of, uh, on the board of the Office of Congressional Ethics to uh, – uh, make the U.S. Congress into a bastion of strong ethics, uh, an institution that he reveres. He's, um, he speaks about the uh, partisan media and how it has driven us to a zero-sum game in politics where instead of 
talking about what, what commonalities and compromises we can drive, uh, increasingly there's an intensity of polarization of the bases. He speaks of the corrupt processes of money in politics, particularly special interest money, and calls for a ban on all special interest money on politics to be replaced by public financing of elections. Uh, he uh, talks about trade and the uh, beneficial impact that uh, free trade policies might have on enhancing America's influence in the world, particularly with regards to human rights and democracy. And all these myriad issues, uh, Mike has worked to advance the public interest and to make this world better, not only for Americans, but for humanity across the globe. So, Mike, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Well, Jordan, thank you. I, I left out one issue that I've spent my life working on that I should have referenced, and that is gun violence. Today's a normal day in America. About 100 people will die from gunfire. Uh, no other civilized country on Earth has the kind of crazy, lenient gun laws that we have in this country, and that would could be so easily addressed to reduce the insanity of uh, of so many gun deaths and gun gun injuries. I had the great privilege of working with Jim and Sarah Brady for for six and a half years as as president of their organization, and uh, that's something. As I look back, I I feel good about being in the fight, although. Um, we, we have still so far to go to bring some sanity to our country. But I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to chat with you, Jordan, and I salute you for, for uh, having this, uh, this podcast that you're doing, and I thank you for inviting me to be part of it. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.